Welcome to the Awakening Church Podcast. We exist to awaken this generation to new life in Christ. Thanks for tuning in. To find out more, go to awakeningchurch.com. Good morning, Awakening Church. My name is Chris, if we haven't met yet. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. And this morning, let's talk about peace, shall we? It's almost Christmas. I feel like I can tell you Merry Christmas. Even though we're not really at Christmas yet, I feel like I can say that. This morning, we're in the Sunday of Advent on peace, and we're in this part in the Beatitudes about peacemaking. Peace is a theme during this season we call Advent. Peace is uh, all throughout everything we see in the Christmas season. It's in every Christmas card you get. It's on Grandma's strange old embroidered pillow that maybe sits there every year when you go over there for Christmas. It's in our songs that we sing. It's also in the famous, one of the most famous speeches given in American life, which is Linus's speech in Charlie Brown's Christmas. (laughs) Rhetorical majesty, in my opinion. When he stands up and he quotes Luke in the old King James that says, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men, right? This old famous passage, or quoted maybe in Isaiah 9, 6, if you've heard this famous Christmas passage, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Our Christmas carols say, peace on earth and mercy mild, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled, or sleep in heavenly peace. This theme like that's underscored right across all these different Christmas times, um, there, it's all, it all points towards something that's very true about Christmas. Jesus came to bring peace, but the question we have before us today is, is what is that peace? The question that we have before us is, what does it mean that Jesus would bring peace? Because what we mean by peace and what the Bible means by peace are very different. American peace is often seen as an absence of conflict, the absence of something, the removal of something, the the taking away of pain and suffering and conflict. And that's normally what we mean when we say peace in our homes, we don't want conflict in our homes. When we say peace in this nation, we don't want conflict in this nation. But the biblical definition of peace is not about the absence of something, but the presence of God. In the Bible, it's that when God shows up, things change. And we all desire peace, but what the Bible teaches is that God is offering us a kind of peace that the scriptures would say surpasses understanding. It's actually so full of goodness and full of love and full of beauty that it dispels and outshines any darkness. You see, peace is not about the removal of darkness, it's about the presence of light. And all of us I know today, at some level, on the personal level or the, or the national level, wherever your anxiety sits today, we all desire peace. But I'm gonna argue today that maybe the peace you're desiring, the removal of conflict in your life, is actually a low bar. That actually you should raise your expectations on peace because God has already raised his. God's peace that he offers is far surpassing what you desire. And here at the end of the Beatitudes, which we've been studying through our series, we call Bless Up. Each week we've been talking about different uh, things that Jesus blesses. This term 
blessed that we just read in in, uh, Matthew 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. We've said that this term blessing is about flourishing. It's actually about who has the good life. That it's not this weird church word of benediction so much as it is Jesus pronouncing upon groups of people who has the good life, who's headed in the right direction, who has a flourishing life. And here at the end of the Beatitudes, we get these final verses in 9 and 10. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The last couple of weeks, Ryan has showed this graph uh, that helps uh, us understand what's called the inclusio, which is that the Beatitudes, when seen together, help us really understand what each one is teaching. So while we are each week kind of unpacking these different terms, it's most helpful to always consider all of the Beatitudes when talking about one. Right? And at the end here, we're at these, these final two blessings that the peacemakers and those who are persecuted are receiving God's blessing. And they are the ones who Jesus looks at and says, you're headed in the right direction. But they're not to be separated from the internal work that God has done and is doing in us. Strangely, though, as you watch the gospel transform your life, As you watch the gospel seep through your life from poverty and spirit to meekness and hungering and thirsting for righteousness, and as mercy and a pure heart comes out, strangely at the end, as Christian maturity continues, as we develop and understand more of who God is in our life, there's a surprise ending. That strangely at the end of the benedictions are persecuted peacemakers, It doesn't end the blessing of God, the flourishing life of God. It doesn't end in material happiness, nor does it end in prosperity. But actually, prosperity is redefined in Jesus' life. That actually, well-being is flipped on its head in Jesus' life. And he says, actually, as you develop all of the things within you and receive God's work in your life, a kind of peacemaking will come from you but at a great cost. And that's exactly what we have today. Strangely, it seems like Christian life, it's not that we are void of con- or, uh, rid of conflict, and it's not that we're rid of peace. Strangely, we're able to make peace and withstand persecution. And so how does Jesus tie these two together, and why would he tie them together? Let's talk about peace and persecution. First, some misconceptions about peacemaking. If you're making peace, you might think, well, Chris, this is exactly um, what everyone should love about Christians, right? We're peacemakers. We're the ones who hopefully bring two sides together and help reconcile the world. And wouldn't everybody love you? Wouldn't everybody enjoy? Why would these two be together at the end? Blessed are the peacemakers and the persecuted. It should be blessed are the peacemakers and those that love you because everybody loves a peacemaker. But the truth is, One of the misconceptions we have is, again, that peacemaking is solely about removing conflict. You see, if it was, if it was solely about removing conflict, everyone would love you. But notice the term is peacemaker. Peacemaker. Peace has to be made. Peace must be introduced. Peace must be brought in. It has to be discovered, unearthed. It's not a removal. It's an addition. And this is important because people will tell you bad theology like this. They'll say something about God's character. They'll say, God can't be around sin. 
And I say, have you read Genesis 3? The very first time people sin, God shows up in the midst of sin. Do you know who runs away? The enemy. The serpent actually leaves the scene, and God shows up on the scene. No, it's not that God can't be in the presence of sin. It's that sin can't be in the presence of God. That's a huge difference. It's a massive difference. Because God is so pure and righteous and just that when he steps in, sin goes away. You see, peace is not the removal of sin. It's the presence of God. And so likewise, when we bring peace, we're bringing the presence of God. The truth is that peacemaking involves bringing God's justice and righteousness to an evil world. And that will be disruptive. The second misconception is that peacemaking is about pleasing everyone. Don't misuse the term peacemaker for people pleaser. Many of you play that role in your families, and come the next couple of days, you'll slide right into that peacemaking role. (laughs) That's not what Jesus is talking about here. Not talking about being the people pleaser, not talking about showing up and making everybody get along. You see, we pray about peace in America, and we think about peace as if we're casting a spell. (laughs) Can't everybody just get along? (laughs) Can't we just all have peace and all of a sudden peace would wash over us and we'd all just start to smile, hold hands, everybody buys a Coke and we sing Kumbaya. That's American peace. Like everybody's sitting around and we're singing these songs where Bono's there and Prince is there in the same room. And it's like, this is what American peace is. It's materialism mixed with good feeliness. It's it's therapeutic. And unfortunately, it's just never going to happen. It's not what is true. It's a misconception. The truth is, peacemaking involves disruption, reconciliation through repentance. Peace is always, listen closely, peace is always the result of a struggle. You know this to be true. Peacemaking requires things to be changed, uh, things to change. Look at these just four requirements of peacemaking I'm going to throw up on the screen, right? Peacemaking requires no sides to be taken. Peacemaking requires both sides to repent so that justice can win. It requires the suffering of the just. Evil must be destroyed. You know this is true when you yourself have seen and made true peace. No sides can be taken when peace happens. Peace doesn't happen when you side with one side and call one side over. It's when both sides lose or repent so that peace can win. Do you understand? Let me make it very personal for you. Have you ever dealt with children? Maybe you live with them. Um, you have to make a lot of peace when you live with tiny humans. And if you've ever babysat or you've ever, you know, had to watch the kids, um, which it goes far beyond watching, does it not? Uh, you, you have to enter in. You have to disrupt so that peace can be make, made, right? When two, right, brother and sister, when they're fighting over a toy, you don't go down to sister's level and you go, hey, look, I'm with you on this one. Um, <laughs> You know, and the brothers like took the toy, let's say, and you like go to the sister and you're like, look, I'm with you. That was not cool. And I'm going to do my best to get brother to like make it go on our side. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's not how peace is made in a house. No, peace is like, hey, okay, that's his toy. Can he have it back? But how about we learn to share, right? How about we learn to let sister have the toy for 20 minutes, right? She can play with the toy for 20 minutes. So you're going to learn to sacrifice a little bit. You're going to learn to be grateful for a little bit. And both of you are going to lose so peace can win. Peace is the result of a struggle, but it, doesn't come at a, it does come at an expense, the suffering of the just. You, the just adult who enters into this scenario, <laughs> do they like you? 
no, they hate you. Yeah, you are evil and the worst person who has ever existed, and you're maybe screamed at. And so you receive the suffering of the just, and evil has to be destroyed. Their entitled little hearts are dispelled when you enter in. You're like, look, this toy doesn't belong to either of you. It belongs to me, because I bought it with my own money, okay? So at some level, I'm like preaching, now people are like waving. Okay, uh, but like, you know, this is, this is what, how peace is made. And this, this happens on the very small personal level. You have experienced, everyone in this room has experienced some level of this, but this is true on the dramatic level as well. Peace requires these things. This, requi- this, this is what has happened in our history books. When you study the great lives of the peacemakers throughout history, this is exactly what they've done. They've entered in. They haven't taken sides. They've dispelled evil and brought the justice of God. And they've suffered for it. Every December and January, I revisit the life of Martin Luther King Jr., one of my great heroes, I reread books that I love about him. I watch documentaries that I've seen a million times. I love his life. It's so fascinating. It's so complex. And oftentimes, MLK is pitched as kind of this um, feel-good person of the American 20th century, right? He just made us all get along. And, and the truth is, uh, uh, Taylor Branch, who's one of the leading historians on, on uh, MLK, you know, he said, King had way more enemies than friends, King had so many enemies, in fact, and he didn't take sides. This is one of the fascinating things about his life. He famously feuded with Stokely Carmichael and Malcolm X, who were on the side of black liberation movement, some of them desiring violence in the name of civil rights. He didn't take sides with them and famously fought with them. At the same time, though, he famously fought with white pastors and politicians, If you've ever read his letter to the Birmingham jail, it's actually a rebuke against white pastors saying, hey, it's just not the time for justice right now. Like, hey, we can get to that, but you know there's a war in Vietnam. We have all these things going on. Like, maybe wait. And he famously made enemies with those white pastors who wanted him to wait because he wasn't taking sides. He was bringing God's justice. And likewise, as he grew uh, in 67 and 68, right before his death, uh, he famously came out against the Vietnam War which made a fierce enemy in the White House with Lyndon Baines Johnson, right? He didn't take sides. He was bringing peace. He was a peacemaker. And he was doing things that not every side really loves, but he was calling both sides to justice. And likewise, he suffered for it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer has the same story. He was actually, like, quite literally a double agent. He was against the regime of Hitler and against the state churches that were compromising the gospel. The state churches were compromising the gospel and providing anti-Semitism and anti-Semitic literature to their congregations. And he was like, I'm not for that because God's not for that. And he wasn't for the regime of Hitler. He stood for justice in between the two sides, calling both to repentance. He suffered for it as well. Today, the same things are happening. Uh, Wang Yi was, is a pastor in, in, in China. He's the pastor of Early Rain Covenant Church, and he and his entire congregation, two weeks ago on Sunday, December 9th, he and his entire congregation were arrested, over 100 people in Chengdu, uh, China. Why? Why was he arrested? Well, Wang Yi stood in between the state churches and the Chinese government. The state churches, which in his view have been compromising the gospel, And the communist regime, which has been suppressing the gospel, he stood with his congregation in the middle, 
to make peace. And he was arrested for that. He wrote a blog post that he was, he instructed his followers to publish after he was arrested. He knew he was going to be arrested. It was published just days after the 9th. And in this uh, blog post, which is titled, My Declaration of Faithful Disobedience, which I love. (laughs) My Declaration of Faithful Disobedience. This is what he wrote. As a pastor, my disobedience is one part of the gospel commission, not to change the world, but to testify about another world. That's peacemaking. It's about bringing heaven to earth. And that means justice. Bringing God's presence to earth. True peacemaking is about bringing another world into this one so that peace could be made by God's presence. And I know, when I reference transcendent transcendent historic and present day figures, you're like, great, good for them. That's not me. Like, I'm just not that kind of person. I'll never be in that situation or that place. But the truth is, that's another misconception. Another misconception of peacemaking is that peacemaking is not for every Christian. It's just for those Christians that are in that time and place where peace has to be made, and then they make it. But that's not, again, consider the whole Beatitudes, the inclusio, the graph that we showed every week here. You guys, all of these things come together. It's not that Martin Luther King suddenly decided to make peace. It's that he started with a poor spirit. It's that he started developing in his life a hunger and thirst for righteousness. Oh, definitely. Why did Wang Yi end up standing up in China and be arrested for his faith and is currently going to be in a prison during this Christmas? Why would he do that? Not because he suddenly decided to make peace and went out and was a peacemaker, go be brave, be courageous. You know, no. He had a poor spirit and God was blessing his life and flourishing his life because of his poverty and spirit, his meekness, his mercy, his hunger and thirst for righteousness. And just what happens when you do those, when those things start to produce in you, when those roots start to go deep, You start making peace wherever you go. And that's where these men and women throughout history have stood, and that's where we can stand, is we can develop the same seeds that were developed in these great men and women, and the same fruit would be produced in our life. Don't separate the Beatitudes. And remember, biblical peace is the presence of God. And if you are a Christian today, the Holy Spirit dwells in you, and so where you go, the presence of God is going. And so you are going to bring peace to your families this weekend, this week in the holidays. You're going to bring peace to yourself. You're going to bring peace to your family. You're going to bring peace to the people around you. But obviously, we must be prepared that there is a cost. Not only is there misconceptions of peacemaking, but there is this cost. All the stories I've told you, you can kind of feel them all around you, that there is a cost. Martin Luther King was assassinated. Bonhoeffer was hung in the gallows of a concentration camp. Wang Yi is sitting in a Chinese prison. The gospel of peacemaking tells us this. When you don't take sides, the sides take your life instead. There's a famous book by a Kennedy School of Government professor from Harvard named Ronald Heifetz. It's this little book titled Leadership Without Easy Answers. It's a really fascinating book. It's about true leadership, like MLK, like people who step, when we say leadership, we think management, organizational management. It's a very benign American term. Leadership, true leadership. It's about stepping into places nobody else is stepping. 
and then bringing people with you. Somebody like Martin Luther King, right? Stepping into places nobody stepped. And, and he writes this book about leadership without easy answers. And, and the final section, as he studied and studied all the great leaders throughout history, his final section is about avoiding assassination. Because <laughs> he goes, when you're truly making peace, when you're truly bringing God's justice, there's an irony. We'd love to think that everyone wants peace. We would love to think that our world wants peace, but here's the problem. When we say peace, what we actually mean is everyone agree with me. We want peace without repentance, and biblically, that's impossible. We want peace and everyone to change and come over and be like us. We forget that peace requires a repentance of all people towards God. It requires a humility, an emptying of yourself. This is why Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 3.16, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, persecution will come. Trouble will come. Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble. We love to quote the promises of God. Did you know these are some? These are your promises. That trouble will come, that persecution will come. And don't get me wrong, it's not that we seek persecution. That's not what's happening here. It's not masochistic. It's not seeking persecution. It's just saying, when you seek Christ, when you seek peace, persecution will come. Just think about all of the times where it truly happens. And that's true peace. That's why peace is not everyone agree with me. It's everyone let's repent. Everyone let's come back to God. Everyone, let's empty us of ourselves and be filled with the Spirit of God. That is true repentance. This is why Jesus said this in Matthew 10, 34. He said this, do not think, now this is going to sound contradictory, but just hang with me. Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Jesus came, again, he's saying, I didn't come to bring peace in the way you think I'm bringing peace. He said, I didn't come here to bring tranquility. I didn't come here to sing Kumbaya. I didn't come here to buy the world a Coke. I came here to show the world what justice looks like. The strange thing, though, is that he was going to show us what justice looked like by taking on injustice. That's why Jesus says, blessed are you when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake. When you do the right thing and it costs you something. When you bring God's presence to earth and it costs you something. Jesus is clear in these passages. Life in his kingdom involves true peace and true peace will cost us the same thing it cost him everything. It will not be benign. It will not be flat. It will be difficult. When you bring peace to a relationship, it's going to cost you something. A difficult conversation, a tough moment, a new boundary to be drawn, a new level of humility. If you need peace in your marriage, if you need peace in a relationship, if you need peace in your family, it will cost you something. When you bring peace to circumstances in your work, it will cost you something. It will cost you a change in your schedule. Maybe people will view you differently, but that's what peacemaking is. At the base level and the historic level, that is peace. Jesus came to bring peace on earth. God brought peace on earth, and it cost him everything. 
It cost him everything. The gospel is not that we made peace with God and it cost us something, but God made peace with us because it cost him everything. Jesus was not here to quote unquote side with the good people, to side with the good Christians, but to die for all people. Jesus did not come to be on the right side of history. He came to overthrow history. He came to turn it on its head. He came to overturn what we think peace might be, to show us that in the cross, there's a new way to live. And if you don't believe me, the Christmas story, strangely enough, has this hidden within it. It's hidden in plain sight of the Christmas story. When Jesus is born, he's just eight days old. It's Jewish custom to bring the baby to the temple, to present the baby at the temple, to be circumcised and blessed by the high priest. They bring Jesus, remember the scene, Mary, Joseph, teenagers on the run, probably 14, 15, 16. They're refugees, they're poor. They're in a, they were in a strange land. And they bring their baby who they believe because angels were speaking to them. They believe that the baby was the son of God and the high priest looks at the baby Jesus and says, my eyes have seen salvation. And he says, this is the Messiah. And this scene happens in Luke 2, 33. Jesus' parents were amazed at what was being said about their baby. Then Simeon blesses the parents. And he said to Mary, the baby's mother, this child is destined to cause many in Israel to fall. Does that sound like the Prince of Peace? No, not not the American Prince of Peace, but the biblical Prince of Peace. This baby is going to cause many in Israel to fall and many others to rise. He has been sent as a sign from God, but many will oppose him. Think Jesus' words, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. Many will oppose him. And as a result, the deepest thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your very soul. He's saying this to Mary. When Jesus said he'd come to bring the sword, the shocking reality of the gospel is he came not to bring and wield the sword, but to take it. And what this priest is saying to Mary is that your son, people will oppose him. And a sword will go through him and it'll pierce your soul. Because you're his mother. You'll feel a pain that will be unique to you. But true peace, the prince of peace, is coming not to ride in on a throne and take political power, but to be crushed. Because true peace costs something. And Jesus, the prince of peace, didn't come to lord over authority, but to lay it down. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. You see, in the world of God and us, sinners, God in Christ did not double down on his side of things and call everyone to him on their own efforts. He didn't batten down the hatches and say, I hope you can make it up to me. No, he didn't take sides. He gave up his side. He came to ours. He came over to us to call us to repentance And what did we do to him? We killed him. Because God in Christ didn't say, become like me. He said, I'll become like you and take your sin and take your destruction so that peace might be produced. That's why you get these lines in the New Testament from Paul. Colossians 1. For in him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things 
whether on earth or in heaven. And look at this beautiful line, making peace by the blood of his cross. Ephesians 2, for he, Jesus, is our peace. He himself, he's it. It's not that you got to do something to make peace. It's that God has done something on your behalf so that peace could be made between God and sinners. He himself is our peace, who has made us both one, has broken down the flesh in the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law and commandments expressed in the ordinances that, look at this, he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. One new man in, in, in the space of the two. So there's no longer you and me, there's us in Christ. Here, this verb, making peace, like Jesus is making peace, is the same Greek word uh, in the verb form that Jesus uses in the noun form to call us peacemakers. We are peacemakers because, check this, we are people that live out of the action God has done. Like we're living as peacemakers because God has made peace in Christ. And so Jesus is doing what Jesus always does. He has already done for us what he is asking of us. He's already done the work that is required. Jesus didn't come on earth to separate us and to make us into the right group and the wrong group. He didn't join any side. His cross destroyed the sides, taking two people and making them one, one new man in the place of the two. The peace of God is not about both sides getting along. It's not about seeing our differences and learning tolerance. It's about obliterating our categories and destroying our prejudices as we're humbled in the light of the cross. As we look at Jesus, we realize how good God is, how wicked we are, and how much we need his help. And that's what all great peacemakers have done throughout history, is not call one side to the other, but to call all sides back to Christ. This is why Bonhoeffer wrote this in The Cost of Discipleship. This is what we are to do. His disciples, Jesus' disciples, keep the peace by choosing to endure suffering rather than inflict it on others. The peacemakers will carry the cross with their Lord. And for it was on the cross that peace was made. Now, you and me, they, the disciples of Jesus, are partners in Christ's work of reconciliation. The culmination of the Christian life is not rallying the troops, unifying the message. It's not about taking ground politically. It's not about standing up for our rights. It's about preparing to bear the cross. It's about looking at Jesus and saying, if they persecuted that peacemaker, why would they not persecute us? And we don't sit around and whine about it. We bear it, knowing that Christ has bore it on our behalf. And so if he went through what he went through, why wouldn't we? It's why strangely in the peacemakers thing, it says that blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. Have you ever thought about that for a second? It's that you're his kids. Why wouldn't you follow in line with what he has done? Why would you not follow in the way of the family of God? This is what has happened to the prophets throughout all time. Peace comes through a struggle. And remember that God has struggled and died on our behalf so we might live in peace. The application of this sermon is not go and be brave peacemakers. No, The application to the sermon is remembering that God has made peace with you. And so what's next? 
I know you'll know. God's spirit will lead you. God's spirit will guide you. You just have to know it will come at a cost. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would bring your peace to us now. I pray that you, Prince of Peace, the peacemaker, would make peace in our hearts today. God, I pray as we reflect and worship, God, as we take the bread and the cup, Lord, would you build this into us as a congregation? Lord, we are to be peacemakers because you have made peace. And so I ask God that if anyone is to make peace with you, they would make peace with you today, knowing, Lord, that it's, that it's all been done on their behalf. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.